This has been a very trendy topic, and I think we need to separate the trend from the science and be honest and sincere in terms of evaluating the science as opposed to getting really excited about something that people are doing and talking very highly about. There's different versions of it. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Gloversville, New York, Anaheim, California, and Dublin, which happens to have more vegan-friendly restaurants than any other city in Ireland. Wherever you are today, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 62 of season 5, number 361 overall. It should come as no surprise that by some estimates, intermittent fasting is one of the most popular forms of dieting in America. But what are the pros and cons of fasting for your health? That is what we will be finding out today. According to the International Food Information Council Foundation, and that is a mouthful. But according to them, more people practice intermittent fasting than follow the keto diet or a low-carb diet, the DASH diet, the vegetarian diet, or even a vegan diet. In fact, one out of every 10 people following any type of diet whatsoever are choosing to follow intermittent fasting. So what is the deal with this wildly popular plan that people say is the jam for their health? Well, let's go ahead and weigh those pros and cons with two-time New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Will Bolsowitz. He is here with us today for a fasting gut check. Literally, we will be learning all the ways that fasting can affect your belly and your health inside and out. We opened up the doctor's mailbag on the exam room live, took all kinds of wonderful questions from the exam roomies who joined us for the live broadcast, like can fasting help with digestion and does it fight inflammation? Can fasting help with heartburn? Is it most effective if you combine it with another diet? And when you are fasting, what can you drink? Are there any drawbacks? And the big important one, what is the best time to fast? Those are just some of the questions sent in by the roomies, and Dr. Will Bolsowitz was all too happy to give his answers. But don't forget, you can join us for the exam room live every Wednesday. Get your question answered live on the broadcast. Every Wednesday, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on the Physicians Committee's YouTube channel and Facebook page. But right now, let's go ahead and raise our health IQs and get the fast facts on fasting. What's up, my man? That was a tongue twister. I was very impressed that you got through that, Chuck. And um, it, it's a it's a testament to your professionalism. And not to butter you up before you start grilling me, but it's. I mean, uh, I I appreciate that. It, it I feel like there was a couple of stumbles. I would like a mulligan, but you were very generous today you with, your, with your comments. I, Thank you. I want to give a quick shout out because my people there are my people are here. All right. <laughs> so hello, out, yes, hello to Emily and DJ Move It. Um, I'm sure that's your full name uh, from upstate, both of which are from upstate New York. So these are, these are my people and DJ move. It says, I love his cookbook. And JK Sampley said in response to that, I'm preparing the warm apple pie oatmeal literally right now. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, this is a great day. That's awesome. 
I want to know uh, how it turns out. That recipe I'm very familiar with. It is fantastic. Can we get um, the play by play, JK? Can we? Yeah. <laughs> I see Bodia also checking in from Denmark. Uh, so that's pretty cool too. That's that global effect. So hi to every uh, everyone joining us, all the exam roomies. Uh, Dr. B, let's go ahead and talk about fasting here. Wildly popular. When I was pulling the stats, I was honestly not surprised that like one out of every 10 people who's dieting, and we're going to put that in quotes, is trying intermittent fasting. And that could be a lot of them are in fact combining it with another diet. But what is the general idea with fasting? Why do people say it's so good for them? Well, uh, first of all, this has been a very trendy topic. And I think we need to separate the trend from the science and um, be honest and sincere in terms of evaluating the science as opposed to getting really excited about something that people are doing and, you know, talking very highly about. I do think that the intermittent fasting or um, there's different versions of it and we can talk about those. Uh, I do think that intermittent fasting can be something that can be beneficial to our health. And one of the things that's nice about this is that it does cut across dietary patterns. So, you know, independent of whether you're someone who's pro plant-based, vegan, keto, paleo, whatever sort of your dietary approach may be, here is intermittent fasting in its many forms that is something that you could potentially implement in your life and there may be benefit to it. And, um, you know, where does this idea come from? Well, Chuck, uh, we live in a unique time within the context of the broader human history. You know, if we look at the entirety of human history across 3 million years, 99.99% of human history actually predates any sort of form of agriculture. And we lived in a time of food scarcity. And now here we are, and at least in the United States, for the vast majority of us, we are blessed that there is no food scarcity. If, if anything, um, we have an excess of highly appealing ultra-processed foods that are just like surrounding us and making us want to eat them. And so our body, though, uh, evolved during this time, again, 99.99% of human history, we evolved during this time where we would eat, and then we would not eat. And so when we were eating, the body would basically flip into a mode of energy conservation, where it's like, okay, I need to store what I can store right now, because I'm going to need these calories later. And on the flip side, when there was food scarcity and we didn't have access to food, uh, that's when the body would basically flip into this other mode. We call it metabolic switching. You would flip into this other mode where you dial back on food storage. And instead, you start using the storage that you've built up, meaning the fat. You start using this as your source of energy to burn through it. So the general idea behind fasting is that we are going to flip that metabolic switch rather than us consuming food around the clock every single day. Um, instead, what we're going to do is we're going to sort of recreate using this modern technique of fasting where we set boundaries and we say, look, during this period of time, I'm going to allow my body to not be consuming food. And what that um, leads to is us flipping that metabolic switch. And, and there are uh, benefits to us doing that, which we can explore. Absolutely. Let's get to some of those benefits. The first question today comes to us from Mariah, who's wondering whether fasting can help with digestion. We think so. I think that there, so one of the big things about fasting is that this, um, 
became trendy before we were able to really start studying it as much as I would have liked us to. And much of the research was coming actually from animal model studies. And I don't really think that taking animals and studying them and then looking at humans and saying, oh, that's the same thing. We're not the same. And so we need human research. But there has been an explosion of human-based research in the last couple of years looking at these techniques. And there is... um, evidence is not always consistent. And I think the reason why it's not always consistent is our individuality as people and the fact that we're coming from different angles or perspectives. So a person who is eating a healthful diet already healthy is not the same as the person who's eating an unhealthy diet and has metabolic issues. Um, with that being said, there is the suggestion that, that, um, intermittent fasting can be beneficial to the gut microbiome. And so if it's beneficial to the gut microbiome, uh, then the uh, expectation would be that this is also beneficial to our digestion. So I do, I do believe that time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting are things that we can apply um, to our life and potentially improve our gut health, which is why I have them in both of my books that, that I've published so far. Chuck, is it okay if I comment on the different forms of intermittent fasting? Of course, my man. Okay. Yeah. I, I feel like that's an important part of yeah. starting this conversation because um, I feel a little bit stuck using these terms and not really explaining them. So drill it down, man. Absolutely. Okay. So the idea of intermittent fasting, this is a very broad term and it can mean many different things. Intermittent fasting is exactly what the words say, which is that you are t- going through periods of occasional fasting. And what that looks like could be a number of different things. So there is fasting that could be like you fast for a series of days and you do this occasionally, um, such as once a month. Uh, Intermittent fasting could be something uh, within the context of your religious beliefs. So for example, there's fasting that occurs during the day for Ramadan. Um, and this is something, one of the sources of our information in humans is actually looking at what happens during Ramadan and the way that they fast. Intermittent fasting could also be something where you look at a week and you say, like an example is what we call five to two fasting, where five days you eat regularly, but two days a week, you either don't eat or you eat a really restricted diet where it's like you've reduced your calories substantially. All right, these are different forms. Now, another thing that falls under this umbrella of intermittent fasting is something that I would describe as more lifestyle oriented because you're not doing a big, hard hitting fast once in a while, but instead you're building a daily routine that's designed to still give your body rest. And this is what we call time restricted eating. And this is, by the way, the form of fasting that I'm personally most interested in. Because I think that it's the most sustainable um, and something that can be implemented in many different ways for many different people. So you can sort of individualize it to what your needs, what your needs are. But the idea is this, you know, if uh, the average American wakes up at six in the morning and starts eating food, right? Um, Like they're eating something, they're having their coffee, they go through their day, they're eating throughout the day. And then it's the evening and it's 10 o'clock at night and you're watching Netflix and um, having some snack and maybe even an alcoholic beverage. Okay, that person is fasting for like seven hours a day. That's not really actually resting the body. 
our evidence suggests that in order to rest the body, it needs at least 12 hours, ideally a little bit more in many cases. So the idea of time-restricted eating is to say that I'm going to give my body at least 12 hours of rest. For example, you could say it's 7 p.m. I'm not going to eat any more food until 7 a.m. tomorrow. Or another pattern that many people do is 16 to 8 fasting, where basically what you would say is there's an eight-hour window that I'm going to eat, and then I'm going to go 16 hours before I eat again. And that eight-hour window could be in the morning. It could be in the evening. There are actually some differences between those choices. We could talk about that. But the uh, the bottom line is this is just another way you can dial it. You could be 12 hours of fasting, 14 hours of fasting, 16 hours of fasting. There's many different forms, um, and you get to make it what you want it to be. So I, I guess like how does the body kind of heal itself with the during the fasting period and, and what happens if there is not this time restricted eating pattern here? Like if somebody's eating like a minimum, say that or the biggest break that they get maybe is like a six hour window, right? So they're not getting a full eight hours. They eat right before they go to sleep. And then as soon as they wake up, they're eating their breakfast, right? So they're only getting this six hour window. What kind of healing or repair or changes is that person missing out on? Yeah. So there's a couple of things that happens, uh, happen during this period of, of taking a break. And we're going to call it 12 hours or more of, of resting and fasting. Um, so Let's talk about the gut first. When you eat a meal, your gut is going to come into contact with the food that you just consumed, and it's going to work. Your, your gut microbes are actually going to be put to work. They got to put on their hard hat and get in there and help you out, taking care of whatever it is you just put into your mouth and swallowed. Now, the issue is it's not done the instant that you chew it up and swallow it. That's actually just the beginning. And your gut microbes will be wearing that hard hat for the next six to eight hours working on these things. So for a minimum of at least eight hours, your gut microbes are not getting to rest at all. So if you have that 10 p.m. snack in an alcoholic beverage, and then you wake up the next day and you get back to eating again, your, your gut has been working around the clock. Now I can tell you, being a medical doctor, having worked around the clock, you're not functioning the way that you should be functioning after about 24 hours of work. In fact, I would argue that it's actually far less than that. And they've, they've, with doctors changed the rules about this. It used to be that doctors would work two days in a row and they've cut it down substantially to now doctors can only work about 16 hours straight without getting a good, uh, good break and some rest. So with our gut microbes, they need an opportunity to rest. Let's talk about your metabolism. So when you are in this state of there is, uh, you know, you've just consumed some food, your body, once again, going back to what I was mentioning earlier, your body is sort of like, okay, um, I am designed for food scarcity. So during this period of time, there's a glucose level that's elevated. There's going to be a release of insulin, insulin to control your blood sugar, but also to take that blood sugar and turn it into fat. And so you, your body is basically in this sort of metabolic mode of storage. When you stop, when you give it a break, you flip out of that mode. Your body dials down the insulin, your blood sugar levels out. And then what you start to do is you start to burn up some of your reserves. First, you burn up glycogen that's in your liver. But after about 10 to 12 hours of fasting, the glycogen starts to get burned out. And then your body flips into burning fat. And this activates the ketones, 
So ketones start to get to be released after 12 or 13 hours of fasting. That's where we start to see these ketones. Now, this is not a, a conversation about the ketogenic diet right now. But what we're talking about is specifically these ketones that get released that actually have benefits very similar to short-chain fatty acids, which we get from fiber. So um, the other thing that I would add, the last thing, not to be too uh, nerdy and complicated here. Nerd but, out, man. The, the last thing that I would add is that um, our, uh, our cells deserve an opportunity to sort of reset themselves. And when we are in sort of food processing mode, they're working. And when we give them a break, there's an opportunity for things to kind of, okay, let's reset. Let's get back to baseline here. And that's one of the things that we see is that there's certain sort of physiologic changes that take place that can affect different parts of how our body functions. That's not just our metabolism, but our metabolism is a big part of that. All right, so all of that sounds really, really good. Uh, let's get a brass tacks kind of an answer here. Uh, if we could pull up a question from 1114 from Lewis Hamilton. I don't know if it's the Lewis Hamilton. It'd be really yes, great if it was. The Lewis Hamilton. Hi, Lewis. It's nice to, nice to hear from you again. Let's just... calling me, man. You're calling me constantly. <laughs> Lewis Hamilton at 1114. Is fasting necessary to be healthy? Well, clearly not. Clearly not necessary to be healthy because, um, gosh, that really is Lewis Hamilton. <laughs> What's up, man? Uh, big fan. So, all right. Uh, it's clearly not necessary to be healthy. You know, it, it, the, the quickest, easiest way for me to get to this is to say, look at the five blue zones. And for the most part, they're not. there's not some sort of structure where within the five blue zones, they're all doing fasting. That being said, during in, in Okinawa, they do practice versions that are somewhat similar to this. And so I think that the point from my perspective is this is not required to be a healthy human, nor is this the backbone of human health. You give me a choice between eating more plants in variety and fasting. I'm going to take the plants in variety, right? I would rather fuel your microbiome with a healthful diet than have you fasting and eating what the standard American diet is. But this can be a tool, among many other things, that can be implemented in a healthful lifestyle and can benefit you. So I think this is something that can be added. It's not you know, required, but it can be something that we can do that helps. All right, let's look at the other side of the equation. Uh, Stephanie has a question. She sent this one in early, uh, wondering whether there are any risks, though, that are associated with fasting. Is there any sort of downside that any data shows, or is this all good? Uh, fasting, first of all, is not for everyone. So fasting is a form of dietary restriction. Chuck, you know this, and I'm guessing that the people who have read my books, they know this as well. I'm not a fan of dietary restriction. I don't believe in calorie counting. And when it comes to fasting, if it becomes something where it starts to cause anxiety or food fear, then we have crossed the line into a place where I am not comfortable and I would not recommend it. And so for people that have a history of any sort of disordered eating, and it could be something like a formal diagnosis of anorexia or bulimia, but outside of that as well, um, if there is um, a history of disordered eating or food fear or food anxiety, then I'm quite apprehensive about implementing this. I feel like there's other opportunities that could be done instead. This is not required to be healthy, as I just said. There's other things that we could be doing that are a better fit for you.
Uh, Patricia at 1117, wondering whether fasting might be a good option for someone with diabetes. Fasting can be a good option for someone with diabetes and specifically uh, talking about time-restricted eating. If a person does time-restricted eating, one of the things that many of the clinical trials in humans have shown is that fasting can improve insulin sensitivity. Um, and that to a person with diabetes is the critical piece. So I, I'm a believer that this is something that people with diabetes should be looking at and considering implementing in a part of their as a part of their life. I want to say a special hello really quickly to Molly, uh, who's tuning in live for the very first time all the way over in Israel. That's pretty cool. Thanks for tuning in. Um, that's man, I love the global impact, Dr. B. Yeah, love it. Uh, okay, here's a fun question. So we're talking about not eating, but what can you drink while you are still on this fast? That is a question from Keenan. Okay, water is clearly fair game. Water is clearly fair game. Um, so if we're... Okay, let me... Be super nerdy for a moment and separate the effect of fasting on the gut microbiome from the effect of fasting on your metabolism. Because I was talking about the metabolic switch and flipping from basically food storage mode into fat burning mode. So to make the metabolic switch, quite simply, if we are reducing our caloric intake to a significant degree, basically meaning fasting, taking a break from food then you will flip that metabolic switch, all right? So that's just sort of, uh, hey, if you're not really eating any food or it's so minimal, such small calories, um, you're good. Now, on the flip side, microbiome. Anything that has a bioactive molecule that comes into contact with your gut microbiome is asking them to basically deal with it. In other words, do work. So now the fast is over. So the reason why I'm bringing it up this way, Chuck, is that the research suggests that 12 hours of fasting is beneficial to the gut microbiome. And I like this number in terms of giving it 12 hours before you have, for example, a cup of coffee or a cup of tea. They may have zero calories, the coffee and the tea. They may have zero or five calories, and that's not going to disrupt the metabolic switch but what it is going to do is it's going to activate your gut microbiome. So now they're not really resting anymore. So my point is this, um, you want to extend the, uh, into the break in terms of calorie intake, but you also want to make sure you get at least 12 hours of not drinking tea or drinking coffee. So there's that window of water only for 12 hours. So here's the way I approach it just to kind of break this down and make it simple. It's like this. I'm a big believer early dinner time. Now, what does that mean? I, you know, we all have our challenges. Some people, they, they get home from work and it's like 645. Okay. Do the best that you can. But to me, early dinner time means you finish dinner before 7 PM. Boom. Start the clock 7 PM. Here we go. All right. If I wait until 7 AM, if I have water after that, like I can be up watching Netflix, I can have some water. Totally fine. The following morning at 7 AM, it's been 12 hours. Coffee is fair game. Or I could start with water, extend the fast a little bit longer before I have my morning coffee. But meanwhile, I have this cup of coffee. I don't add any, I mean, I, I don't add dairy anyway, but I don't add any cream or sweeteners or any sort of calories to it. Just black coffee. Uh, I may put some fiber in there. And I have that in the morning. And then I just kind of delay my breakfast a little bit. 
And delaying that breakfast may mean breakfast. I mean, frankly, I don't wait until I'm hangry. Could be 9 a.m., 10 a.m., 11 a.m. Somewhere in there when I'm feeling like, gosh, I'm starting to get a little bit hungry. It's time for me to have a snack. Time for me to eat something. Many times I'll eat a piece of fruit. And whatever that is, let's pretend, started at 7 a.m. And now it is uh, 11 a.m. Yo, that was 16 hours. Not bad. What if somebody wants to put like a squeeze a little bit of lemon into their water, something like that, make it fruit infused? Does that uh, do any sort of disruption there as well? So it doesn't affect the, the the sort of metabolic fast that we're talking about and getting into ketosis that will not affect that, but it would affect the microbiome. So like it's 10 o'clock at night, you're squeezing a lemon in there. Your microbes are going to have to deal with that. <laughs> They're going to have to deal with lemon it. water. I'm not against lemon water. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to be clear in terms of the rules here. It's just funny the way that you put it, your micro, your microbes are going to have to deal with that. Oh man, that's great. Uh, somebody is asking. I'm not trying to be nasty, Chuck. Okay. <laughs> it, just, I, it caught me off guard, man. That's all I'm saying. Uh, it to the enemy here. You're not the enemy. Uh, Nikki here is wondering whether fasting can help with acid reflux. Yeah, we think so. We think so. Um, and I think a big part of this is actually, to be honest with you, it's giving you a framework and a structure so that you're not eating food late at night. And anything that you put into your mouth and, and, and leave in your stomach, when you lie down flat, the problem is gravity used to be your friend. And now gravity is actually your enemy. You're lying flat. Your esophagus is basically a, a horizontal line. And it's very easy for things to basically reflux into your esophagus now. So what we want, you know, if I were counseling a person who has acid reflux, I would say I want at least three, if not four hours of not eating any food prior to going to bed. Well, guess what? That's a great jump start to a fast. Right on. Um, let's talk about uh, some other ways that it can help. Uh, Adriana is wondering whether fasting, if there's any data out there showing that it can also reduce the risk for a lot of these chronic diseases that we talk about all the time here on the show. There, so uh, the strongest data is with metabolism. So that includes blood sugar control or diabetes, includes blood pressure, and includes cholesterol, and um, it includes your weight. All right, so that's where the strongest evidence is. There is um, a belief based upon animal model studies and some early human studies that fasting is gonna have additional benefits. This includes in terms of our brain and our cognitive function. So the thought is that fasting actually may be a good pattern for us in terms of reducing our risk of degenerative brain diseases like Alzheimer's. And there also is um, some evidence with regard to autoimmune diseases. So, you know, as a quick example, Chuck, um, there are studies, actually multiple clinical trials where the approach that they took to treating rheumatoid arthritis, which is an inflammatory autoimmune disease that affects the joints, uh, one of the most common autoimmune diseases out there. The approach that they took to treating this condition was fasting and a vegetarian or vegan diet. And it worked. I would assume, uh, or would I be correct in assuming that it would help reduce inflammation that's associated with other conditions as well. Olivia is kind of wondering the same thing. Uh, RA, obviously an inflammatory condition, but if fasting has anti-inflammatory effects, could one say that it would help with other conditions that are inflammatory? 
Chuck, you, is there, are you talking about autoimmune diseases or is there a specific? We, the, Olivia wasn't specific here, uh, but I would assume we can keep it with autoimmune diseases. So maybe Sjogren's would be another example. Yeah. So um, uh, again, I think that there's more uh, research that we want to do, but the suggestion is that fasting does reduce inflammation. And um, and we, we again see this not only with rheumatoid arthritis, but with multiple sclerosis. Um, I can tell you speaking clinically as a gastroenterologist, if a person, for example, was admitted to the hospital with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, believe it or not, one of the things, one of the tools that I have that has nothing to do with like infusions of medication was actually to give their gut a rest. And in many cases, it would improve the symptoms of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis and help in terms of healing. Not in isolation, like I typically didn't do it just like, hey, I'm just going to bow rest them and then and then add back the food. But it was a part of what we many times would do for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. So this is actually already a routine part of medical care. All right, let's talk about fasting plus something else. We were talking about at the top where one out of 10 people, if they're following any sort of dietary pattern, are fasting, but they could also be combining it with another type of diet. Lizzie specifically is wondering whether fasting is proven to be most effective when combined with a plant-based diet. The data that I've seen on this is with regard to rheumatoid arthritis and rheumatoid arthritis, the beauty of it in, in this regard, in terms of research, is that because it's common, because it's one of the more common autoimmune diseases, there actually is quite a bit of research that's been done in terms of what are dietary patterns that are beneficial for this condition. And the overwhelming evidence is in, in favor of a plant-based diet. And, and then there are these clinical trials that... Um, were done. These are not new, by the way, they were done 20 years ago that they combined fasting with a vegetarian or vegan diet and saw significant improvements in rheumatoid arthritis. So um, that's where I've seen the most data with regard to this specifically. But I, I would, I would expect it to be, I would expect these to be synergistic things, to be honest with you, Chuck, like why do one or the other when you could do both? Do you think, especially if somebody's gravitating toward a whole food plant-based diet, which we know uh, is nutrient dense, um, but definitely lower in calories and fat, do you have any advice for how they can still make sure that they're getting adequate nutrition if they have that time-restricted eating? It's a good point. And I think that like flipping to a plant-based diet, like if you make an aggressive flip towards a plant-based diet and simultaneously start doing intermittent fasting at the exact same time, like, oh man, I heard Dr. B and Chuck on the exam room and I'm, I'm going to change my diet today and start doing fasting. It's a bit much. This is why I'm a believer in easing into things. Because first of all, I want your body to be given an opportunity to adapt to what you're doing. Second of all, I don't want too many moving parts all at the same time, because then if you don't feel well, we're not really going to know what's doing what. And, um, and third of all, at the end of the day, it should be like really sustainable. I want, I want whatever you choose to do to be something that you actually can continue to do and is not so tough and restrictive that it's unsustainable. So, you know, with regard to this, Chuck, I would focus on changing the diet first, focus on transitioning to a plant-based diet. Some people, when they transition to a plant-based diet, if, if they misconceive what a plant-based diet is, and they're literally just eating like greens with a couple of vegetables, and that's it, they end up in such a calorie deficit that they don't feel well. And they have fatigue and things like this. They feel sluggish. 
That's the calorie deficit. And the reason why that's happening is because a plant-based diet is not just exclusively vegetables. Plant-based diet includes fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, and legumes. And I would make the argument that whole grains and legumes are the backbone of a plant-based diet. And those tend to be more calorically dense. So when a person's transitioning to a plant-based diet, focus on that first, get settled in with the plant-based diet, be comfortable, feel good. You're going to feel good, feel good on your new diet. Um, give it some time. And then this is when you start to look at this sort of idea. And I would also ease into this. Start off with a 12-hour break, 12 hours, start there. Don't change it within one week. Give it some time. See how you feel. Make sure you feel good. Then you can move to 13 in a couple of weeks. All right, let's do an exam roomy roll call here. Big Ant checking in from Houston, Texas, telling people to hit them like. So yeah, like this video, subscribe to the channel. Thank you, Big Ant. Also want to say hi to Annette. And Sherry says that she just gave fiber fuel to her bestie. That's awesome. Thank you, Sherry. And let's take a question from Dolores now at 1129. She says, love you both. You're amazing. Thank you, Dolores. The question is, what would happen if you did a prolonged fast of 30 days? That's a long time to fast, man. Yeah, and I know I know that there are places where this is being done, um, like True North, for example. And um, what I would say is this. So first of all, let me just say that from a gut microbiome perspective, when we start extending the fast beyond 24 hours, we are actually selecting for specific bacteria. And what we're missing is we're missing fiber. And so the microbes that thrive when we eat fiber, they, they can't like really get stronger in that setting because they're being deprived and starved of their preferred food. So when we extend the fast beyond 24 hours, I have a concern about the effects that this can have. And there is some research, Chuck, suggesting there's um, this biofilm that exists within our intestines. And there's specific microbes that chew on that biofilm when there's not a food supply. And what can happen is you can actually thin the biofilm out to the point that it can actually put you at risk for things like uh, dysbiosis or leaky gut. So I personally would not recommend that people do this of their own idea and certainly not independently. If you are to do this, you should do it under the guidance and direction of a trained health professional who's also monitoring you while you're doing it. Uh, Ian checking in from Norway says love fiber fuel. So all the way over in Norway, getting some love. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, all right, Sir Lewis, he is an inquisitive one today. Lewis Hamilton at 11.32. Is fasting beneficial if you are already a healthy vegan? All right. First of all, I'm starting to wonder if Lewis <laughs> is just really good at getting his questions answered because he's Lewis Hamilton. Um, but is fasting beneficial if you are already healthy vegan? I haven't seen, it may exist. I have not seen a great study specifically to answer this question where you take a population of vegans and you randomize them where half of them would start doing fasting and the other half would just keep doing what they're doing. Um, I haven't seen that study. Perhaps it exists. But do I think that this can be beneficial? Absolutely. Because at the end of the day, a healthy lifestyle is not just the food that goes into your mouth. It also includes other factors. It includes factors like sleep and exercise and our circadian rhythm. And the circadian rhythm is the part that I think is really important and a part of the story here when it comes to fasting. Circadian rhythm, by the way, Chuck, for those who are curious and wondering what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the fact that there's a 24-hour clock that naturally exists. And this is because the sun goes up and it comes down and it does this on sort of a 24-hour cadence. And it's been doing this because we're planet Earth and we evolved in the setting of having a sun. 
it's been doing this since the very beginning. So every what's unique is that every single creature in every single part of this planet evolved with this one same concept in mind, which is that there is the rise and fall of the sun on a daily basis. And what you find is that we all, as a result of this, have a rhythm throughout the day that is the that is um, uh, the result of, of, of evolving with the circadian rhythm. This includes microbes, this includes plants, this includes us as humans. And when we do time-restricted eating, the advantage of time-restricted eating is that we're tapping into this normal rhythm where we stop eating food at times that normally we would not be eating food because we're supposed to be sleeping and resting. Um, and instead we're condensing our food intake into normal daytime waking hours. And that actually is beneficial. All right. We were talking, uh, you, you alluded to this a little bit earlier, there being a difference in fasting earlier in the day versus later in the day. Mishi Mishi, love that name, at 11.34 is wondering if you could elaborate on that. What's the difference between eating during the day versus fasting um, or, or versus in, in the evening, I should say? Okay, so let's pretend that we're going to do this idea of 16, specifically 16 to 8 fasting, because it's a little bit hard to move a window around if it's only a 12-hour window, right? I mean, you can really, how do you do that? But when it's an eight-hour window, the question is, what are your eight hours? It could be 6 a.m. until 2 p.m. Um, or it could be 12 noon until 8 p.m. And these are very different things. And there was a study that was published recently where they looked at these two different choices, either starting your food intake early in the day, meaning like 6 a.m. or 7 a.m., and going until 2 p.m. or 3 p.m., and then no food after that until tomorrow. Versus the alternative choice of starting at 11 a.m. or 12 p.m. and going until 7 p.m. or 8 p.m., okay? And basically what they found was that the benefits were actually more significant in the people that had early morning or early day fasting, meaning that you start your window for eating earlier in the day. Now, I personally... Would struggle with this because I can, it's very easy for me to skip breakfast and I could do an eight hour window very easily uh, if it's just lunch and dinner. But it's hard for me to skip dinner. I get hungry. So you have to think about what would work for you. That being said, my interpretation of the study, I think the part of it, Chuck, is that we tend to not like go super hard at breakfast. We're kind of waking up, we're getting going, we eat a moderate breakfast. We eat a moderate lunch, and then many of us for dinner, we smash it, you know? And so if you skip dinner, you're skipping the meal that people smash. And if you skip breakfast, you're skipping the meal that most people eat moderate. So um, that's my interpretation of that study. You know, Denise has a really great point, though. She's wondering at 1140, what about people that work really odd hours, like up at 2 a.m. and working until one o'clock in the afternoon? If somebody's a shift worker or working a skewed schedule like Denise, what's the best way to do this thing? First of all, I'm grateful to our shift workers. These are people that are typically civil servants. Um, we would not be able to have the great society that we do without them. I think I'm thinking of nurses, I'm thinking of police officers, firefighters, things like this. Um, to some degree, degree doctors, but honestly, I take a backseat to the nurses because they're the ones in the hospital in the middle of the night and more than nurses, all health, all healthcare workers that are there in the hospital working in the middle of the night for us. The research actually, Chuck, is rather clear on this. Um, I don't like that this is the case, but this is the truth. It comes back to the circadian rhythm. 
Our body is designed to be awake when the sun is up and to be asleep when the sun is down. That's the way that we are designed. And when we flip that and we do sleep-wake reversal, um, you actually will find that this has metabolic effects that are unwanted. People who work shifts tend to, as a result, have higher weight, higher blood pressure, higher cholesterol, and are a greater risk for diabetes. So the population-based research is there. Um, it's hard for me to globally answer this question because different people have different schedules. So most people who are shift workers, for example, a nurse may be working three or four nights in a week and then have a break. And so I think that the point from my perspective is I still think that there's value to um, restricting your food intake to a, a limited number of hours. And what I would try to do, what I would encourage, I mean, it's hard for me to explain this without taking 20 minutes, but what I would encourage you or try to do is try to get it as close to normal waking, waking hours as possible. So if that's the case, rather than eating at like midnight and 5 a.m., I would prefer to you that you be eating at, you know, for example, um, 6 a.m. and maybe noon or something like that. All right, let's uh, grab a couple of more here. Uh, we'll start with Pete, who is wondering about the overall effect on the immune system. Say you're exposed to a cold, the flu, whatever the case may be. If you're fasting, is your immune system more up to snuff than if you're not? It's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I'm guessing that that has been studied, and I did not see a study specifically on that. But what we do know is that fasting is beneficial not only to your gut microbiome, but it does appear to be beneficial to your immune system. And so I would generally, generally um, expect that this would be beneficial in that particular setting. That being said, it's a bit complicated. Like I'm not trying to make uh, a, a global recommendation that if you're sick, for example, with COVID-19, that you just start fasting. You know, I think lean into your intuitive signals. If your body's telling you that you need food, um, you need to nourish your body because that's an important part of being um, strong and, and dealing with the infection as well. All right. And the last question is actually from a few people in the chat who have been wondering whether uh, this could be beneficial for someone who has ulcerative colitis. Yeah, I think so. I think it would be beneficial to people who have ulcerative colitis. I would expect that. There you go. Let's go ahead and close up the doctor's mailbag. If we didn't get to your question today, have no fear. The good news is Dr. B will be back again one month from now, uh, the second Tuesday of every month. So go ahead, keep on submitting your questions in the comments or in the chat, and we will save it for a future episode. Uh, man, this has been great. So many people are really curious about fasting. Um, I certainly learned a lot, man. You want to talk about raising your health IQ today. I think that we did that in an epic way as terms in terms of uh, what we know, what we don't know, fasting windows, the different types of fasting that intermittent fasting isn't just this one thing. It's this one thing. And then there's a bunch of different ways to do it, man. So uh, excellent work as always, my friend. Oh, my pleasure, Chuck. Thank you for having me here. And um, uh, quick shout out to Lewis. Lewis, next time we go live, why don't you just go live with us? Let's get you, let's get you on camera, man. Let's do it, Sir Lewis. Sir Lewis. And uh, by the way, uh, that uh, warm apple pie oatmeal recipe is available in the Fiber Fueled Cookbook. If you have not yet picked up your copy of that, there is a link to do so right now in the show description or in the episode notes. Highly, highly, highly recommend it. And uh, Dr. B, my friend, I will talk to you again soon. Great seeing you, Chuck. Thanks so much, man. Thank you, everyone, for being here and hanging with us. 
Again, a huge thank you to all of the exam roomies who joined us for the exam room live. I love interacting with you all in the chats on Wednesday. So if you haven't had the chance yet to join us live, set a reminder, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific for the exam room live every Wednesday on the Physicians Committee's YouTube channel and Facebook page. It's always a great time, especially when Dr. Bolsowitz is on the show. So I have some great news to break here. We're breaking some news with an exciting announcement. A huge thank you to you because the Exam Room podcast is closing in on 10 million downloads. 10 million downloads. And now we need your support to get us to that mark. So if you haven't already subscribed to the Exam Room podcast, please go ahead and do that right now on Apple Podcast or on Spotify, wherever it is that you get your shows. And when you subscribe, please also leave a five-star rating. And then to really help us get to this 10 million mark, please also share it with the people in your life, especially if you're really involved in a plant-based community. Let's get the word out there about the Exam Room Podcast and really help to raise everybody's health IQs coast to coast and around the world. You know, we really have been raising health IQs 10 million times over, and we have no plans to slow down anytime soon. We're going to keep offering this hope, this knowledge, this inspiration, the tools that you need to hopefully live a longer, healthier, happier, and fuller life than you ever could have imagined. And if you want another fun way to really raise your health IQ, how about joining us for the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, August 18th through the 20th in Washington, D.C. This is the last call for you to make a reservation coming up very soon. And we will be recording episodes all three days of the conference. I'm going to be sitting down and interviewing a lot of the speakers who will be there to present the latest research on nutrition science. Here are just a few of the names. Dr. Neil Barnard, Dr. Gemma Newman, Dr. Kim Williams, Dr. Alan Desmond, Dr. Monica Agarwal, Dr. Jim Loomis, and Dr. Rita Redberg, who is the editor of JAMA Internal Medicine. That is a huge deal. So somewhere close to 30 speakers overall and CME credits are available, but you do not have to be a doctor or a nurse or work anywhere close to healthcare to be there. You just have to have a passion for your health. So visit right now. Get one of the few seats remaining, pcrm.org slash ICNM, or click the link in the episode notes. Now then, let's talk about healthy bones, shall we? A new study is blasting suggestions that vegans do not have strong bones. In fact, this study shows those bones can be just as healthy as omnivores. And for those details, we head to the exam room news desk. If you're eating an exclusively plant-based diet, your bones will thank you to add resistance training to your exercise regimen. In a study of nearly 90 adults, roughly half of whom were vegan, researchers discovered that vegans who practice resistance training at least once a week had stronger bones than those who didn't. That type of training includes machines, free weights, and bodyweight resistance. The findings appear strong enough to dispel the myth that omnivores have better bone density than vegans, showing instead that those who abstain from eating meat and dairy and engage in those training methods as well have similar bone structure to their omnivorous counterparts. 
And a link to that study is in the episode notes. There is one caveat here that is important to note, and that is that the vegans in the study who did not practice resistance training, they did in fact show some diminished bone strength. That was compared to the omnivores who also didn't lift any weights. But the study concludes that that type of training should be part of anybody's regular lifestyle to keep the bones nice and healthy. The bottom line here is this. If you're worried about being vegan and having weak bones, there are some really easy steps that you can take to keep your bones as strong as anyone else's. And honestly, I would imagine that resistance training is probably a good idea no matter what diet you're eating. And we have a fantastic guide for you to keep your bones strong and healthy while eating a plant-based diet. That's up on our website right now, pcrm.org. And I've dropped a link right to that in the episode notes for you as well. This guide covers everything from the best sources of calcium to the best ways to keep calcium in your bones. There's also an easy to follow chart that lists foods and the amount of calcium that they have. Also, right next to the amount of calcium is the amount of magnesium too. Very important for bone health as well. So really critical information for warding off osteoporosis and just making sure that you stay healthy as we grow older. Good stuff to note. So go ahead and check out that guide. And for today, that, my friend, is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Will Bolsowitz for being here and raising our fasting health IQ. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.